Uh, lots to hear from your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. What does your day look like when you're trying to find somewhere to live? Very, very stressful, very degrading. Especially like when you're being told there's 200 people in for this one specific house. Uh, the first thing they ask you as well is, are you walking? Alexis, you're a professor of computer science in Trinity College in Dublin. Um, does this mean that you cannot leave your home? Yep. Full stop? Pretty much. Full stop. Yeah. Oh, God. I, I believe I near, I broke me back myself by trying to get help. I didn't even know what a wheelchair was at that stage. And do, and do you know? Do you know now? Oh, Jesus, I know now. All right. Um, yeah, I've been I've been welded to one now for thirty years. And we'll start in the morning. Claire Byrne was in Dundalk IT for the Today programme and she was talking to locals about how they're feeling about the cost of living crisis and the approach of winter. I was out and about in the town centre of Dundalk and I had a chat with these people about how the increased cost of living is affecting them. Coming into the winter, everyone's worried about cost of living. Are you? Yeah, so is everybody. Yeah, I'm sure electricity, you have heating, you have... Every, every bill has gone up, food, everything's gone up, wages aren't gone up. It's the anxiety around sort of not knowing what's coming, isn't that the biggest thing really? That's it, yeah. If you could, if you could plan for uh, the year ahead, like, but you can't. Every bill that I have has gone up. I'm an old age pensioner and the old age pension doesn't stretch at all. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of an extra jacket in the house, <laughs> sitting around in your fleece. Another 70 quid. On school books? On school books, yes. Certainly not blaming the schools, but fees have gone up. I, I just can't. I have six children, so yeah, that's my fault. I can't blame anybody about that. <laughs> all right. But okay, there's fine. one heading to college, and then all the rest of them are in school. And this year was a massive hit. Uh, six children—that's yeah. that's tough at any age. We normally get a big crate of wood because we've a you know like an aga that runs off wood, which was two fifty last year, is three seventy five this year. So we haven't even thought about that yet. It's all about next Thursday when you get paid. We've gotten to that. It's all next Thursday. So you're waiting to cross the next bridge? Waiting for the next paycheck. Have you noticed bills going up? Have you noticed things are more expensive? Oh, it's it's like, what does it go from? From from 200 to 650. And we can't afford it. And I have three kids. Yeah, no, it's just gone crazy. And I've actually changed companies. And then I thought it would come down. But my last bill was still up in the 600. You see, the worry is that that is going to get worse because yeah. price rise is kicking in, the weather getting colder. I mean, is that on your mind? Yes, all the time. We don't know what to do. The bills, oh my God. The bills are just dreadful. Through the roof. What have you noticed? Which bills have gone up? Electricity and the oil. Do you know what I've noticed chatting to people is that they're worried about what's to come. There's a fear about November and December. Yes, yeah. The winter fear of the winter. And you know with the budget's coming up now in less than two weeks, I mean, what do you think would help? Well, they, are talk- I mean, they were talking about giving us so much towards our, our electricity, which would be a help. Absolutely. You know. But I fear at this stage, even that help. Yes, OK, €200 Euro is a lot of money. A lot of money to us, because we're on minimum wage. But it just doesn't balance. It's a drop in the ocean when you're talking about those kind of numbers. Yes. Everything has gone up except our wages but what do we say about our employer like this is a small small business 
and it's also not fair on her. Yeah, but you're very generous to say that because yes. you you need that extra money. Oh, absolutely. I we need that extra it's money. It'll be different on in a bigger business. This is only a small business. You know, There's only four of us work here. You know, we're not going to be better off. Out and about in Dundalk, then Claire spoke to Mark O'Neill of the Irish Soup Kitchen Service. Well, Mark, I'm going to start with you. A lot of what we heard there will be very familiar to you, I'm sure. Yes. It's something we're hearing on the street every day of the week. Has it changed? Have the people changed who are coming to you with that message? Are people more worried now than perhaps they might have been? I think there's a lot of fear out on the streets now at the moment. Uh, ESB is a major concern. Um, Heating is massive. It's massive as well between gas and oil. Oil. At this, at this time now, you're nearly paying 1400 1500 for a tank of oil, and it doesn't last that long either, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. And what are you doing to help them? What can you do? Well, to be honest about it, what we, we, we have soup kitchens where individuals can come in and get their breakfast, dinner, even a meal. Uh, we also have a, a food, free food delivery service. Um, we try our best to get between 150 and 180 euro into a food parcel for a family. And uh, we're especially bringing out a new one this year for the old age pensioners because, like, they're the rock of the country. They're the ones that laid the foundation for all of us. Well, you must see a need uh, there if you're introducing that. There's a massive need because they can't, at, at this stage, we've, we firmly believe, and from what we're hearing, they can't heat and eat at the same time. It's just one or the other. Yeah, I was talking to somebody yesterday who was telling me about, uh, and we'll hear more about this later, about a woman who was just afraid to put the lights on. That's about anticipating what might be coming down the tracks. Like when you're meeting old age pensioners, are you hearing that message, I'm afraid of what's going to happen in November? I even have an auntie that has only crossed the old age and she's at that stage where the lights are not going on and she actually fell back a couple of months ago. Okay. Due to that, and, and the food that you're giving out, Mark, where are you getting it from? There's different companies that uh, give us food. We we buy some food as we raise funds. Um, Bally Maguire Foods look after us. There's 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 several organisations that look after us pretty well. So donations. Donations is is a lot of it. There is a lot of there's a lot of food goes to waste in this country, and if you can get your hands on it and distribute it. One of the women I spoke to there mentioned the energy credit, which we're expecting to come, maybe not just once, a couple of times over the winter, but that'll be going to everybody. What do you think? I think that's it's it's a it's a bad way to operate their system. The government need to get down off the pedestal and look at what's happening. It's the lower income families could have been getting double that money uh, from 200 maybe to 400. Mm-hmm. Everyone got it in the country and some people laughed at the fact that they were receiving it. The higher earn, earning in- incomes, 200 was um, a dip in the ocean. And they shouldn't get it, you're and saying? That, mm, yes, mm-hmm. they, they certainly shouldn't. And it's not... I suppose it's not for me to say. I'm just uh, all, all. All I feel is that uh, there's a lot of individuals that need it more and deserve it more. Well, Trina is with us as well from the uh, Simon Communities. You're very welcome, uh, Simon. Simon Communities here in Dundalk. We've had a housing crisis now for a long time, so you've been dealing with problems for a long time. But the cost of living crisis—how has that changed things for you and for the people you work with? Um, I suppose when the housing crisis initially started a number of years ago, um, there was a lot on the news about the change in demographics of homeless people and that we were seeing people that you maybe wouldn't usually see in the hostel systems. I see that way more prevalent now than I did at the beginning of the housing crisis. I see um, people who you know, have maintained homes for 15, 20 years ending up in our systems. So um, I suppose that's the, the one of the most darkest things. Then I suppose the, the other people that we've traditionally always worked with, um, they're not 
because of the, the accommodation issues, they're not able to move out of homelessness as quick. So in my hostel, I'm seeing them staying a lot longer. Mm -hmm. um, hostels can be quite a traumatic environment. There's 30 people in one place and um, a lot of them with mixed issues. Um, so it's having the impact on, on all of those people. Uh, rough sleeping, is that a problem here in, in Dundalk? Uh, rough sleeping would be a problem. It's not as visible as it would in Dublin. I, I had worked in Dublin Simon community and I've worked in Dundalk um, now for the past three years. Um, here in the, what you call, I suppose, more a rural town, you see it out in, there in parks and woods and stuff like that. There, you don't see as many sleeping bags on the street, on footpaths and things mm -hmm. like that, but it does happen. People make uh, decisions then to go out of the town if they need to sleep rough. Absolutely. And another thing we were just chatting about before the show kicked off was um, just, I could have maybe one person who moves on to a one-bed apartment and then there could be three or four people who are now going to mm -hmm. move into that apartment with them as well. So You, you know when we, when we speak to ministers on this programme about housing and they tell us that the Housing for All programme has been up and running for a year, the supply is coming. Do you see that? Do you accept that? Do you think that maybe in six months, a year, two years' time, this problem will be eased? No. Um, I would have, considering how long the housing crisis has been going on, um, just looking particularly at Dundalk, um, with my job I would keep a keen eye on all of the developments that are going on around the town and just actually on my way here I was looking at some of them, there's none that are near in completion so certainly for the next year I'm not seeing that we're mm -hmm. going to get a, a stock of housing that the councils will be coming to us and saying here's, we have 20 properties coming up, who do you have for them? Um, yeah, there's, a lot of the bills aren't anywhere near completion. That's Trina Harper from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, motorcycle enthusiast Paul Minor was talking to Joe about his extraordinary story, starting with getting his licence in 1980 and a serious accident in 1991. So, look, I got my licence in England and everything was good. We moved home and uh, I just got a bit of a bang one day. I came into a corner, there was gravel on it, things went wrong and I hit a telegraph post. Um, which uh, left me, I was pretty broke up from it, like, you know. Um, so the the back was broke, the clavicle was broke, oh lungs God. was busted. Bit of damage, but... Uh, Bit yeah, of damage? Your back was broke, your clavicles, your lungs. Yeah, yeah, but uh, look, I was listening the other day and yeah. there was lots of people saying... They had accidents and stuff, and they were all very late. But I just wanted to say, like, it, it, it doesn't always work out just as simply as yeah. that. And, and, and do you, do you, Paul, do you remember the accident? Do you remember the pain, for example? Oh, I do. I was awake on the road. I, I, I believe I near, I broke me back myself by trying to get up. God. You know, but that, that's all hindsight. At that I time, know, I, I didn't know, even I know. know I didn't even know what a wheelchair was at that stage, you know. So, and do you, and do you know? Do you know now? Oh, Jesus, I know now. All right. Um, yeah, I've been I've been welded to one now for thirty years. Because of that accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and when you were look, when you were lying on the ground, sorry, did you? Have to, but did you think you were going to die? Well, no, well, I tell you, I got fired and I landed up on my mouth and nose and I lifted my head and the blood ran out of my mouth and I just thought to myself, well, by Jesus, you've done it now. And I then tried to get up and my left arm wouldn't work. I lifted on my right arm, which must have twisted me. And that is probably what done the damage. Whereas if I'd been knocked out, I probably wouldn't have done so much harm. 
Can you remember the pain? Uh, I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, the pain, the pain wasn't pleasant now, let's put it like that. It was so, yeah. Because you're a great man for understatement, Paul. Well, look, yes. it's 30 years ago, yeah. I suppose it's not so fresh anymore. And how long were you in hospital for? I was in, um, I was I went up to uh, the NRH. National I was there Rehabilitation, for four, yeah. Ah, uh, so fabulous place, but I was in there for four months, and uh, I came out, and I bought a bike on the way, on the journey home. Okay. Um, but, you're, but, you're in, but you're in a wheelchair. Ah, yeah, but that's, you know, uh, at that stage, it was to be able to continue, you know. And we built a business from there, like, as in we kept going, like, uh, what I was trying to say was people say they get their license and stuff, but, it's a, you know, it's a way of life, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's something that never dies in you. Even if you can't ride it, you still want one, you know. And you so. bought, you bought, but do you have to use especially, like, just, what, 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 you're in a wheelchair now, why? Well, what can you not use? If I, sorry for, well, being, all the, all sorry for left, being blunt. All that's left now, basically, is the right arm. So you're a paraplegic? Oh, yeah. But that didn't stop Paul. See, I, I built a bike then, so okay. I lowered the seat and... Uh, we liberated a Guinness beer barrel one night and we built a frame around it and put a wheel on it and put that on the side of the bike. And yeah, I've oh, been so all that over. means that means you can ride that bike with, with your good arm. Yeah. Yeah. I put the hand controls up on the handlebars and plates for holding my feet in place and things like that, you know. Wow, so, yeah. Wow. So the idea of the yeah, I have a photograph here. It's spectacular. The idea of the the outer the outer wheel with the with with the Guinness barrel as a feature on it, and and then a frame around it. The idea is to make your two wheel motorbike a three wheel motorbike, so you can ride it with one arm. Basically, and, and you the don't balance is you not the balance. needed. Then okay, yeah. and then you and you, you your feet are free into what are they kind of stirrups or something you built? Yeah, they're they, they just, look incredible. Yeah. It's just a place to put your feet that they're secure and don't fall off or anything. And did you design this yourself? Ah, uh, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, like it was it was something I always had an interest in, so I said I'd give it a go, and it worked well. I'd, I'd done a lot of miles on it. You know, we've, we were all over England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and uh, it was, yeah, it, it, it you know, it, it left it that you, you were still you were still in control that you could get yeah. out and about. You know, and you so. remember you, you talked about almost it's, it's, a, it's a vocation or whatever um, and that's what I'm hearing all week from motor motorcyclists that you just love the freedom. Do you still get that buzz out of it even though you're, you're post your accident? Oh, without a doubt. Every time I hear one, you know, it's, it, it, it just gets the hair standing on the back of your head. You 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 get to know the sounds, and it's just no. It's it's something that never comes out of your system. Like they're, they're more addictive than drugs. Once you start with them, you ain't ever stopping. Oh God, you're you're the you're the evidence of that. You're the proof of that. You yeah. had a motorbike accident. You ended up unfortunately uh, paraplegic, but left with them the use of one arm. And on your way home from the National Rehabilitation Centre, you bought a bike and decided to convert it into a 
three wheelers, so you could your your one arm you got the best use out of your one arm. Yeah, and done well with it. And it's not just me, like I know paraplegics who race bikes, who okay. have modified bikes. I I know paraplegics that actually get held up on the bike and once they get moving, they can have the race and nothing goes wrong. Well as they pull in there's people there to steady them and you know, it's the sort of thing, once it's in your blood, you can't get rid of it. Paul Moyna on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on the Ray Darcy show, older gay men and their lives through massive social change. Will Kennedy was Ray's guest in the afternoon and he was talking about struggling with identity, finding acceptance and turning 65. An official OAP next year. OK, <laughs> so you were born in what year? Uh, 1957. OK. Uh, yeah. Ireland was a very different place when you were growing up. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. How, how different for you? And, and, and how, how young were you when you realised that you were gay? Uh, I always say it was different for me. If you talk about no, anybody coming out or anything, like we have support groups, we have the LBGD helpline, you have masses of places you can direct people to, like if they're discussing their yeah. want, having problems. But I literally had none. And I suppose I never, I never realised being gay was anything different or anything. But I have one vivid memory of when I was about five or six, I was out playing soccer with my brothers and stuff and I came in and then I was playing with my sister on the floor with, uh, I don't know, playing house, playing, having tea party, whatever. And my father came in and he really got angry at like and shouted like, why can't you be like your brothers? Because I have three brothers. Uh, why do you have to be different? And that's the first time I remember hearing the word different. Right. And for me, you wouldn't know at five like to how to conceptualise it, but I knew there was something going on, but I didn't realise that playing quite happy playing with girls things as they're called and boys things that to me was no different that was my normal and I suppose it was about when I was around 10 or 11 and you're beginning to become aware of the opposite sex aware of the opposite sex yeah and we went to I was talking to her uh, guy here on the radio yesterday Neil, Neil yeah. and uh, I was saying to him like school discos but it wasn't discos it was in the convent with the nuns keeping you apart but <laughs> my rumors, friends yeah. oh yeah my friends like would come away and they'd be talking about uh, you know girls and their interesting things and I realised as they were talking what they were saying about the girls I was thinking about them uh-huh. <laughs> and I just began to realise yeah there's something going on here but there was no place to talk I never heard a word about what I was feeling. I never heard it from anybody. I mean, I think I got a book from my father when I was 11, boys growing up. and It was basically biology, you know, on sex, but there was no mention of me. And my first introduction to my sexuality, I suppose, was unfortunate. I was molested uh, when what I was age 12. 12. And the thing about that is, like, um, when somebody is the older adult in power, like, and they tell you things like, First time I heard the word faggot, homosexual, queer, all this like, and I was basically the the cause of what he was doing. <sighs> it's hard to explain. You believe it as a kid. You believe these things. And then I went to confession to uh, confess my sins and basically was told by the priest that, yeah, I was uh, homosexual, as he called it, intrinsic, sorry, <clears throat> intrinsically evil. And... Uh, Later on, I found out that not only, not much later on, it was around 14, that uh, it was also illegal, criminal offence and a mental illness. So at 14, <laughs> that's what I thought I was, intrinsically evil, uh, a criminal and uh, mentally ill. Right. So 
Not a nice description. When no. And no. at that stage in your life, you're trying to find out who you are in the world. And there you're yeah. you carrying with you all those labels. Yeah. And, a, and, and of course, that that man, that, that you know, that animal, he, he, that was his way of shaming you and making sure that you wouldn't go and tell on him. Oh, yeah, I've yeah. had lots yeah, of... Yeah, so you, know, you know all that. I've yes, had yeah. lots and lots of conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, that's a part of my life like that. Yeah, it still can upset you when you talk about of it. Of course, like, of course. I don't even think about it daily now. Yeah. Like, it just was unfortunate for the introduction to your sexuality mm. because it and he, consumes he, he, you. Well, he must have spotted that you were... I think I was an obvious. Yeah, yeah, right, okay, you were an obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like even now uh, we talk about you know coming out. People ask you when you come out. I think you're coming out the whole time. It never stops because you go into a new job, you go meet new friends, whatever. And within I don't know an hour or two of meeting new people, people say to me, "Are you gay?" <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm kind of giving up wondering what I give off. Like, you know, it's like yeah, it's, if it's that obvious, like, you know, it's like I have one friend who said he only found out he was gay when people used to tell him. <laughs> right, right, right. And Ray asked Will about his teenage years. Fourteen, then you're you're going to confession and all that, and and you you were religious, deeply, yeah, deeply. yeah. Uh, and I, like I'm a bit younger than you, but when I was at school, I went to a Christian brother school, and there would have been you know brothers and priests coming around and giving the pitch yeah they would have given you that, yeah. I don't know if it still happens in schools I doubt that it does I don't but, know <laughs> but, but they, 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 so they were recruiting yeah and did that happen in your school yeah uh, and I, I did feel that I suppose I thought I had a vocation but the confusion in my mind of my sexuality not knowing who I was or anything I don't now think I had a vocation I think it was a way out if you um if you weren't going to get married when you're 18 or 19 or a little bit older, the question starts about girlfriends. So there was either marriage or the priesthood. And I left Ireland for a bit when I was 18 and I came back when I was 22. I just travelled around a bit. And when I came back, I decided, yeah, the seminary was going to be the, I was going to be the one because it was too many questions starting in my life. But through all this, I, I was drinking heavily. That's got me through all my teenage years and everything. Like I'm in recovery 28 years. And that was to get out of your head. Uh, it was that it allowed me to to act. Is what I always felt that I was doing all my life. I could act straight when I was uh, yeah when I was drunk and go you, with you the act, lads. You act you acted straight when you were drunk. Yeah, you go with the lads and you'd um, start chatting up girls. I had a girlfriend when I was seventeen, and you're doing all that, but. Alcohol allows you to yeah. do it. Like it really does. Like it allows, it shuts down all your emotions, all your feelings, everything about yourself. So um, you never learn who you are. And, and and of course, you're living in a country. There are no role models. There's no representation of who you are in the media, in popular culture, nowhere. No, I mean, um, I, I say things like, um, <laughs> picture yourself being in a a dark room, but so dark that it's black. And you're just feeling your way around. And that's what it was like in my head. In my my life felt like that, that I was living in a black space and there was nothing and no one that I could reach out to. I mean, in fact, I, I attempted suicide three times in my teenage right. years, but fortunately they didn't work. Um, I literally feel that through all my counselling, a lot of, I've had two or three different counsellors, uh, the alcohol, until it really became bad, was what got me through. <laughs> Strangely it? enough, like it yeah. allowed me to fit into this world the heteronormative world that I have to live in um, yeah. 
So, so the seminary then you went into a seminary, yeah, to get away from this, to get and, away from all of this, and it was cover. It was, it was you know, a beard, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I have, I have no. I'm, I'm an atheist today, like, and I, I, I think sometimes I think I'd like to say I don't have a chip on my shoulder about religion, but I think I have a forest, not actually a chip. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to work on there. Yeah, Will Kennedy there, and if you need someone to talk to about these issues, rte.ie/helplines. And back to today with Claire Byrne coming from Dundalk. And Claire was talking to Natalie Kelly from Drogheda Dolls. Natalie, you're here as well with us and you're from Drogheda where you have Drogheda Dolls. Yes. Tell us about that. Okay, um, I started a group online four years ago and um, it was more or less just to bring the community together because we're very an online world now. Um, And from that, like amazing things have happened over four years. Probably things that I didn't think would happen when I opened it. Um, we've completed thousands of kind acts together. We're a group of 21,000 women. Um, we only allowed kindness on the group. Um, and we, um, yeah, the group has become much more than just bringing the community together. It's become a lifeline for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, we see lots of lonely people putting posts up. We see lots of people asking for help maybe that wouldn't have the... Because we have an anonymous uh, system there so they can put up anonymously. But it goes beyond the Facebook group, doesn't it? You have yes. a physical presence as well. Yeah, so I listened to people and that's one thing I try and do all the time is listen to what the ladies are saying on the group. And last year, one of the big things that kept coming up was loneliness and a place for people to be together. So um, I decided to open um, a doll's house, it's called. And we're just there in the town centre in Drogheda. Um, downstairs is a meat room and you have your tea and coffee. And we did a friendship night the other night and it was lovely. Um, 15 people turned up and two or three of them were completely lonely and would have been at home alone. Um, so it was lovely that sense. And then upstairs, um, I'm just waiting on some paperwork to finally open it. But upstairs we have a boutique. Uh, it's a free boutique. And there's a food store as well. And the whole idea, I came, I had, uh, when I would go out to help people and give them food from other dolls that were donating, um, you'd be giving them a bag of stuff and they maybe generally don't want some of the stuff in it. And the idea was to do, um, to give people an opportunity to pick and choose. Like if you have 20 euro at the end of the week, um, there's not a lot you can do with that 20 euro choice-wise. You're buying the cheapest food. So the idea of having the food shop upstairs is they can come and pick what they want and there's no waste because they know exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. The same with the foods or with the clothing boutique. They All the clothes are brand new. So just because you're on the poverty line or you're having a hard time doesn't mean you have to get a bag of seconds that are not great. No, so it's to give people empowerment and dignity because it's the worst time in your life. Okay, and where are you getting the clothes from? Are they coming from, from other shops, from boutiques? Yeah, I was very, very lucky to be um, donated clothes from M&S and Tesco. And they give me the end of uh, season. So I'm actually four seasons ahead. I've collected four seasons ahead. <laughs> and another doll has a, um, a warehouse. So I'm four seasons ahead with with the stuff is out and there And are you well. asking people who come in for the food or the clothes to give a donation if they can? No. So the idea is they come in and have a coffee. And one of the things I find is people who need help don't ask for help. It's usually a neighbour or a friend that might reach out to us. Mm -hmm. So if they come in for a coffee and they know we're kind, genuine people that just want to help, they might come in a few times for a coffee and then they say, look, Natalie, I have a need. I might have to go upstairs. 
And the idea is that they go upstairs, they can shop at their ease, and they go back out in the street with a couple of bags. Nobody knows if they've just had the, if they've been into us or not, or a discreet building. You can come in for a cup of tea, or you can come in to go upstairs. And the whole idea is to do, because people are at the worst times of their life, just to give them dignity and empower them. And it's, a lo- it's a lovely idea. And Claire also spoke to Eileen Hart of the CBS in Dundalk. Eileen, you're very welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much. The reason we wanted to talk to you was you've, you've started in the school to provide free meals to the children, haven't you? We have, yeah. We were recently um, given the DASH status. So um, with that came the programme for free meals. And um, we're starting off with the cold food first, and then we're hoping to move on to the hot food then in October. So, h- how's it working out? Do they like it? Oh, it's fantastic. The kids are so excited about the whole, um, the whole, you know, the whole experience of having food together. And I think we've sort of focused on that is the whole so- social element of it, because um, children missed out on so much during COVID that um, this has allowed them to come together and just to have chats and to really have that social experience of eating together. And they get to pick their food the night before? They do, yes. The the company that we have, um, that we're using at the moment, they have an app, so the parents actually can go on and they choose the food that they know their children will want to eat. So we are finding as well that some of the children then are looking at what other kids have and they want to try new things. So um, it's, 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 we're so lucky. And this is a program that has been um, implemented um, and most DASH schools have it. So we have just joined the bandwagon, essentially. And tell me, but would you have noticed before this that some children would come in, maybe wouldn't have had their breakfast, didn't have their lunch? Was that happening or was it more hidden than that? You see, y- yes. And that is... The really important message, and I suppose I, I heard that there um, with your panel panelists. Um, sometimes people are living in disadvantage and not being able to pay their bills, and they come to school in their full uniform. They have what they need because their parents are in the background struggling. And I come from a disadvantaged background myself, so my mom would have been on her own. And one thing, we always went to school in full uniform. We had our lunch, and yet she couldn't pay the electric bill. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'd come home and I knew that my mum was going without her dinner to make sure that we were fed. So it was hidden. And I think that is something that we have to get out there to people to understand that people, our parents are working, they're trying to do the best for their children, but, you know, they could be living in poverty and nobody actually knows. And I think part of this whole school meals programme is fantastic because it's inclusive. Every single child gets a meal. They'll get a hot meal. So one thing for sure is that when the child goes home, their parents can rest assured that their child is fed. And nobody knows what they have and what they haven't got. Eileen, how did you do it? How did you get to where you are from where you were? Um, I I suppose we're talking yesterday, it was probably determination. Um, I was an early school leaver. I left school at 15 and um, I... Was I went to school in Jobstown? I actually went to school, secondary school in Brookfield and in Talla, and um, it was tough. It was hard, and you're living day to day, so it's it's different. It's trying to explain that to people that you know you can't look at doing your leaving search. You can't look at going to toward level because you are worried about how you know how your mother's going to pay the bills, how how we're going to get through life day to day. So. Um, I did leave school and I had to work and I had to earn money to help and um, eventually when I got the chance to 
do the leaving cert as an, I was older and got VTOS and um, so you know education changed my life and I am so conscious of that and being principal of the school now I want to bring that message to everybody that you know you can do it and education changes lives and the government have to keep investing in education and understanding that difficulty in Dash schools and for children that are attending Dash schools that they actually need that extra help. The other advantage that you have, I suppose, for your pupils is that you are able to see the signs, even if you have the clean uniform, even yeah. if it looks as though everything is yeah. okay, you, you know what to look out for. Would you agree with that? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And um, I'm very lucky that I have Maria is our new homeschool liaison teacher. And um, she is absolutely fantastic and she has really taken the bulls by the horns, as they say, and she is out there trying to link in with parents to find out, you know, and just as, you, as your panel has said, that people are self-conscious. People that are coming from difficulty and economic difficulty are, they're proud people and it's very difficult to ask for help. And I suppose trying to get that message across to say there are people out there that will help if you are struggling come forward and, and it's, you know, we will help. Eileen Hart, school principal of Dundalk CBS. Then we heard Mary's story. I want to talk to Mary now. Mary, you're very welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. How long have you been homeless? Uh, just over a year now. Um, I have been awarded my HAP, um, but I still can't find anywhere to live. What does your day look like when you're trying to find somewhere to live? Very, very stressful. Um, very degrading, especially like when you're being told there's 200 people in for this one specific house and uh, the first thing they ask you as well is, are you walking? I don't understand why they ask you that question when you're looking for somewhere to live. Um, but I am, I am walking, uh, thank, thankfully. Uh, but I still can't, can't find anywhere to live. Mm -hmm. And I'm on daft, I'm on all platforms of housing looking I, I sometimes I rarely get back from. But you've managed to keep going, and oh, you're, yeah, you're, in, I, I, you're in the job and you're working away. Yeah. But this huge problem looms over every day. All I'm looking for is my own front door. Mm -hmm. Really, that's all I'm looking for. And this has been going on for twelve, year, 12 yeah. months. Yeah, yeah. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Not I mean, at the moment, no. Mm -hmm. Not and, at the moment. And what's it like for you now, where you live? You're in temporary accommodation. I'm in temporary accommodation. I am, I'm in shared accommodation uh, with other people. Um, but I've had my own before, and I just want that back. Yeah, it's, ver it's very hard to go from your own for, place from to that. Own place to so when, sharing. when you say shared accommodation, you have your own room, but, but you're sharing I'm the share kitchen. I'm else. And the bathroom. Bathrooms, kitchens, sitting rooms. Yeah. Coming from your own to having to share with other people like as well. Yeah. It's just, no. Look, I, I really hope that you find somewhere you deserve somewhere and, and, and I hope that you get that weight off your shoulders. I really do hope so myself. I really do. Like, I think over a year, I noticed other people looking probably longer, you know, but I didn't think it was this bad. Like. That's Mary from Today with Claire Byrne.
And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, writer John Boyne was talking about his new look, finding inspiration in dark places and his follow-up novel to the hugely successful The Boy in Striped Pyjamas. It's called All the Broken Places. John Boyne, good morning. Great good to see morning, you. Good morning, Ryan. We'll talk books in a second, but how schvelt you're looking, how well Thank you're you. looking. Thank uh, you. Uh, things I probably shouldn't and I'm not allowed to say, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, to what do we owe this uh, kind of recalibrated John Boyne? Um, actually, I owe it to Unpust. What? Go on. Um, About four months ago, a package got delivered to my house, which wasn't for me. And I wandered down the road to deliver it to its correct recipient. And the person who opened the door was talking to me and she said, do you know, every time I see you, she said, you get bigger. And I I know. And I went home and I took out all the biscuits and cakes and sweets and crisps in the house. And you know what I did? Go on. I, I ate them all. Did you? I ate them all and I said, this is the last of this I'm ever going to eat. And that was four months ago. And since then, I've had no processed foods, no sugars, nothing like that. I've walked 20,000 steps a day and I've gone from 89.6 kilos to this morning where I was 78.2. And what's that all in stone? Sorry, um, I don't know. Well, it's 11.4 kilos, which is about 25 pounds, which I think is about two and a bit stone. I don't yeah, know. That's, that's amazing. You 11 can see bags it. of sugar. OK, even better. So, but, that, but I can see it in you. That, that is great. Uh, but, uh, I, there's so many places I want to go. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. First of all, the, 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 the lady who... <laughs> she's a very nice lady. A very nice lady. <laughs> she's, she's one of those great unfiltered people yeah, that we know. Yeah. She didn't mean any harm, but it was just like, you big fat... You know, <laughs> God, so. yeah, if you were to give what was really in her head so, yeah. yeah so and I just thought right and and actually you know I wanted to lose weight for a long time um, I, even like I looked at myself on that when I was on the Late Late Show at you last autumn hmm. and I thought oh you know did like, you yeah and I just thought I, I need to lose weight and it was it was the moment where I thought right that's it and you know, I'm 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 almost as skinny as you, Ryan. You were, in so. fairness to you, but, but steady, honey. You don't want yeah. to disappear completely. You know, we like your books. I want to get to seventy. That's okay. that's my plan. Yeah, as so in seventy kilos. Okay, so that's another, what you meant age. No, no, no. Um, uh, another eight to go. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, so you're nearly there. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, isn't it? What what triggered that though? Just yeah. one comment. Yeah. But it's great. It's great for my mental health. For my um, just feeling confident and feeling happy in life. Um, it's been it's it's changed me completely. And I had to buy a whole new wardrobe. Did so. you? What a, what that's a nice, nice thing that was out yeah, that, that's that, fun. To, to have to do. Um, that sounds quite uh, like all in. Are you an all in kind of guy? I am. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Probably next time you see me, I'll have put thirty pounds on or something. If you decide to go <laughs> against the time, I am. I'm very. I, I'm a very focused, disciplined person. When I decide to do something, that's it. I do it. Okay. What have people been saying when they see you in this new state? They say, "Who is this handsome man? Who is this? And how do I get his number?" <laughs> so. <laughs> but has it changed people's perceptions of um, you, do you think? I think, well, people say, have been saying it to me, which is always nice because it's nice when people, you yeah. know, it's, it's better than somebody saying, God, you look so tired this morning or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, so I don't know if it changed people's perceptions, but it's um, all that matters is it makes me feel good. OK. And Ryan asked John about writing the book, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. Uh, I wrote it for a very simple reason, which was I had a good idea. And that idea that, you know, almost 17 years ago when you and I first met yes. in the, one of these studios and talked about it and had that idea of the two little boys at the fence. And for 18 years previously, I had been such a serious student of the Holocaust, had read so much about it, had studied it so deeply, not with the intention of writing about it, but with the intention of educating myself on it, learning about it. And all of that 18 years worth of study came together to that Tuesday night where I had the idea and the Wednesday morning, where I have said so many times, I sat down and started writing it and it came together so quickly. 
Uh, why the Holocaust in terms of, and I'm, I'm not just going to ask mm. you personally, people, people, I'm one of them, can't get, can't understand it. It's so unfathomable that, and can't, you know, stop looking at it and trying to learn and trying to learn about the human condition. It's, it, it's such a fascinating gruesome I mean there are no words yeah. for it but why are people intrigued well for me when I first grew interested in it when I was 15 yeah um, the thing that struck me the most about it was that this was not a historical thing this was something that had happened in my parents lifetime um, in striped pajamas Bruno and Schmuel are both born on the 15th of April 1934 which is my father's birthday and that was my way of personalizing it yeah. to say to myself right this is not something in Tudor times or medieval times this happened when my dad was a kid, when my mum was a kid. How is that possible? And I think everybody who writes about the Holocaust, whether it's novels or nonfiction or makes movies or whatever it is, um, is always looking for the answer to that question that you're asking of how can something like that happen mm. in front of the world in, you know, such a recent time. And we never do find that answer and we probably never will. But the job of the writer, of course, is not to find the answers, but to pose the questions better and to get people thinking about it. So that's, you know, what I've been doing for, well, really all those years up to 04 when I wrote Striped Pajamas and a sizable portion of my life since then and up to today. And as you were, you were writing The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, um, the boys, well, the, 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 on this side of the Shmuel, Shmuel was, is Bruno, sorry, Bruno's sister, Gretel. Yes. Um, was a figure in the book, obviously, who was, she wasn't necessarily um, a second string figure. She was an important figure, no doubt about it. But she she seems to have been very important to you in the yeah. writing process. And particularly since when you finished and like the end and you put the book away, she never left you. Yeah, I stayed with Gretel. Gretel has an importance in that first book in the sense that she starts that book with all the dolls. She's 12 years old all the dolls in her room. She's a very sort of girly little girl. And um, then she removes all the dolls and she puts up maps of Europe following the armies because she has a crush on Lieutenant Kotler. And she, it's a, it's, she's a small enough character in the book, but she's sort of representing um, how easy it is to change your character, how easy it is to be brainwashed. And once I finished that book, I said to myself, at some point in my life, I'm going to go back to Gretel. I've left her at the end of this book alive, age 12, knowing that her father is the commandant of a concentration camp, yeah. having lost her brother. Um, what is it like for somebody like that? What is it like to grow old and know that your father was in the SS or the Gestapo or ran a concentration camp? Yes. Do you feel guilt? Do you feel shame? Do you feel complicity? How does it affect an adult's life? There yeah. are so many people, for example, in Germany today who just by the nature of their existence, their parents or grandparents probably more likely um, took part in at that time and were in the Wehrmacht or um, had some role in the war. And what does that do to the psyche? And when I want to know the answers to those kind of questions, my job as a writer is to write the novel. Yeah. And, and I find out as I write it. I created Gretel now as a 91-year-old person. She's 91 years old in 2022. In Mayfair, in a in very Mayfair. opulent apartment. Very yeah. opulent apartment, yes. She has lived um, her life with this stain on her. Mm. And she has hidden from the world, really. She has not wanted to expose herself, knowing that if she did, I mean, she would instantly almost become the most famous person on the planet. You know, the the the, the amount of uh, the journalists would be all outside her house. Yeah. She'd be a villain. Um, and she has spent her life hiding this, but feels great guilt 
and complicity and shame and at the end of her life is trying to understand how do I atone for this before I die. So John expanded on that idea of the children of the perpetrators and their parts, if any, in the evil that was done. Well, in Gretel's case, you see, she is innocent of, of any crime. Yes. But what she's not innocent of is when um, one section of the book leads us to Paris after the war in 1946, where she and mother immediately go after the war, li- recently liberated Paris after the Vichy government, and she changes her name and mother changes her name. They don't want to expose themselves to the world. Now, any piece of information that somebody like her could have given about the camp to the Allies could have helped the, the family of a victim or, or of a survivor. The tiniest detail could have helped them. And her guilt and her shame comes from the fact that she chose, rather than to do that, she would... Uh, silence. Silence, pure silence. I don't want to get involved. Wow. I don't want any part of this. This has nothing to do with me. And it's for the reader in a way, I think, to... I like writing kind of ambiguous characters that at the end of the book, the reader might not be sure exactly where they stand on them. In Gretel's case, Mm. she has tried to live a blameless life since, but there is this one thing that she cannot get away from. She doesn't hold herself responsible for her father's crimes, but she does hold herself responsible for that. And on the few occasions in her life where her... Um, her true self is revealed to somebody. She is challenged on that time and again. Mm. And people say to her, why didn't you tell? You know, just just any piece of information could have helped. But w- the question is for a reader, would you? Yeah. Now, now, this is why your book is so good, because it throws up these, do you remember the game Scruples? Yeah. Uh, what would you do? What yeah. would you do? And, and it does it really elegantly. I think the, the writing, you're just on such good form, as you always are. But just this book particularly, it was knocked out by, I think it was about two or three sittings. It was, I couldn't, you know, put it down. It was that good. Um, and it bounces beautifully between timelines, which can sometimes be a little uh, turbulent for a reader, yeah. but not in this case, because you go back to the place before uh, the other place, as as it's never mentioned by name. Well, uh, no, and in, it was in, never mentioned in in um, Boy Destroy Pajamas yeah. either. Uh, We're talking about Auschwitz, obviously, but or, well, or, or, or a camp. Okay, a I know camp. you're kind of going. Yeah, it's, it well, it's, it was never intended to be one particular camp. It's okay. representative. Okay, of fair camps, enough. And and I think that's an important distinction. But yes, what I wanted, I, I I split it into these two halves effectively, where the running thread through it is is Gretel, age ninety one. And having this experience with a family yeah. who are living in the flat beneath her, and there's a domestic violence, domestic uh, violence situation going on and there again. Yeah. A nine-year-old boy who is going through trauma by being abused by his his father, and a mother down there who is ignoring what's going on. So it's sounds it's familiar. very much sounds yeah. familiar, yeah. very much what she went through before. But then the three sections I mentioned: Paris after the war. Yeah. Then in the early fifties, she goes to Australia to Sydney. What is the point of going to Sydney? It is as far away from Europe as you could possibly get Escape. without coming back again. Yeah. And that's what she, th- she wants to do. She thinks, I will do that. And yet there is no escape. Yeah. Because when she gets to Sydney, by pure chance, it is a novel. By pure chance, who does she run into but Lieutenant Kotler? Mm-hmm. And what an exchange that is between yeah. the two. And he has, uh, and this, this, that is a bit of a plot spoil that you've, that you've given there. Well, but I think, I think, it's, I think we can okay give one away because yeah. there are a few yeah. actually uh, twists. And uh, so let's, if now that we. I think it's worth talking about him. I think so. For me, the most interesting section of the book was these two chapters where there's just the two of them in mm. a coffee shop mm. talking. 
and challenging each other. And when I sat down to write that, I was I wanted to see what will these two say to each other. Kotler is a true believer. He loved the power. He, he was loved, a monster too, yeah, really. Yeah. He loved the uniform um, and he misses it. He misses what he had. Yeah. And Gretel is challenging him, saying, but you did this, you did this, you did this. Mm-hmm. And Kotler is very quick to turn around to her and say, but you, you're not going to reveal yourself, are you? Yeah. You know, she says, I will turn you in to the, the police. And he's like, go for it. You know, turn so me he, in, you're turning exactly. yourself in. He's kind of saying, I'm guilty for what I did. You're guilty for what you didn't do. Yeah. And I know what I did. And I'm, I, I'm aware of it. Mm. But don't sit in front of me like the innocent. Yes. Because yeah. you're not. <laughs> and, and they're it, both on the run. Yeah. They're, you know, both, from are, themselves. they're both hiding their identities. Yeah, yeah. And she's using this moment to, to try to find some, um, to try to get him to say, oh, yes, you know, you're, you're a saint when she's not. Mm. So it was fascinating for me to write that dialogue between the two of them and the challenge that goes on between mm-hmm. them. And even the moment where he asks her, don't you wish in your heart we had won? And there is that part of it. She loved being the daughter of the commandant. She loved being this, this powerful figure. Had they won, her life would have been a very different one. And she is challenged on that. And I thought that was an interesting thing. John Boyne. The new book is called All the Broken Places from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Liveline, Joe was talking to families and individuals affected by a change to a transport service for people with mobility issues. ACTS, you've probably seen the buses because they're frequent um, sight all over Dublin. They're mini buses, well, they're large mini buses, Renaults or um, Volkswagens or indeed Fords. There's about 10 of them in Dublin and ACTS stands for uh, accessible uh, community transport service and it's a fantastic idea and um, what they do is they provide door-to-door service it's a demand responsive in other words you book the accessible transport for, and it's it's totally and completely for people with disabilities and mobility issues across south and west dublin and we heard uh, yesterday evening and this morning from a number of service users in one area ratfarnham uh, volunteer that uh, th- there's bad news for this incredible service. Uh, Alexa Donnelly, Alexa, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Uh, uh, afternoon to the listeners as well. And tell us, Alexis, yes. um, what, how did you use the service and what has happened? Okay, well, I um, rang up on uh, Wednesday. Uh, yeah, for, yesterday. Sorry, yeah. no, Tuesday. I rang okay. up to make a booking okay. for a medical appointment the following month. And I was told Acts was closing uh, tomorrow and that there would be no service available. So um, I'm a wheelchair user okay. at MS for uh, nearly 30 years. I'm quadriplegic right. and uh, I need to make medical appointments. I'm still working. Yeah. need to make uh, work meetings, uh, various things, and um, I need to get around. I can't use um, buses because uh, I need um, uh, you know to be driven yeah. carefully over bumps yeah, okay. um, and the headroom in taxis just isn't there for a power okay. wheelchair user I use an electric wheelchair okay. I've been using an electric vehicle for years you know yeah. uh, and it's cutting my life really no medical appointments no work meetings 
And tell us, no, about, tell us, tell us about uh, Axe. How do you access? How do you access this service? Up until yesterday, when it was shut down, yeah, you, how did you? Uh, how did you access this, Alexis? You rang. Yeah. Uh, and you made a booking. Okay. And they come and picked you up and brought you to where you needed to go and would uh, be a return booking as well. And they provide a fantastic service. Um, they're, they're vital for me. Um, so you, if you, if you, am I correct in saying, from what you say, you can't use taxis, uh, space, headroom, uh, you can't use buses, and that's understandable, um, even though they are accessible to yeah, most people. Have... But I understand you say you have to be very careful going over ramps. So we had this this service is ideal, ideal for you. Now, how do you know how how was it funded, Alexis? Well, my understanding is they they get some money from uh, Popple which is yeah. a state semi- body yeah. state body and uh, they make a modest profit and that's it now um, I imagine they were hit very hard during the pandemic because everyone was at home yeah. no one was moving so demand fell away and uh, it should have picked up by now maybe it hasn't well I presume but, now they're into the throes of petrol and diesel and exactly uh, yeah yeah and they uh, they have to pay drivers and they have to get the, the buses maintained. So the, the costs are increasing. And uh, so, but And Alexis, you're a professor of computer science in Trinity College in Dublin. I know you lectures and you have many research and, and papers written. Um, does this mean that you cannot leave your home? Yep. Full stop. Pretty much. Full stop. Yeah. God. Alexis, then Geraldine Graydon of ACTS. Your company secretary but, of ACTS. In, in, I, overall or yes. just in one area, Geraldine? Explain. No, to no, me. no. Just to put stuff in context for you, Joe. Great, great. Axe, Axe is an, a non for profit social enterprise. It has it is no connection to the Irish Wheelchair Association okay. at all. I know that, yeah. It was, it was originally set up. Uh, through uh, the par- partnerships, outside partnerships, right. um, originally set it up. Um, we're funded through the community um, service programme and then Pubble are the people who administrate okay. that. Which is a, a, a state-funded organisation. Oh, yes, yes. yes exactly. Yeah. So the, the, what, what the funding we get, Joe, is uh, we get um, 50% of our funding, which is approximately 250000 okay. from um, this fund, this community fund, which pays the wages of the, the staff, which pays the drivers and the admin staff, right? Okay. We generate 50%, the other 50%. But we do not make, we have never made a profit. Okay, well, that's understandable, yeah. Because it's a social, it's the type of service is you know, it's not if, profit making. In road air yeah. and Dublin bus uh, expressway, they, they've never, bus they've air never and transport for us. Ireland, but they've never made a profit either. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> but, but, to, but to put it again in context, the Minister Eamon Ryan announced this, all oh, whistles and everything about this new initiative for transport. He never spoke to us. He never even contacted us. And there was no mention in that document of on-demand, door-to-door transport mm-hmm. for people with 
um, physical disabilities and mobile disabilities. Okay, so what? So, Jerry, what has shut yes. down as of yesterday? What has closed? Everything, everything. The, the ten- whole of South County Dublin. All your, all your minibuses. All we had ten as as the service user okay. that said we did have ten. So they the were second ser- buses wore wear and tear. We never could get capital funding for to replace the buses. The lottery were very good to us, but the lottery never stipulated we had to buy second-hand buses. But they never gave us enough money to buy new ones, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. okay, so, so you're so telling... Let's be clear about yeah. this. Dunleary, still organ, yeah. Dundrum, yeah. Ballantyre, Ratfarn yeah. and Ballyfair, McCrum and Tallaght. They're all gone. Tala. They're all gone. All gone. All gone. Geraldine Graydon talking to Joe in the afternoon. And in the morning on the Ryan Tuberty Show, some pen tapping, which means Ryan means business. Maybe it's because Mercury is in retrograde. Funny the thing that came up in passing among ourselves to an extent, and an email came in that kind of summed it up. Is there a sort of a narc in the air? Is everyone a little bit nervous about what's going to happen in the autumn and uh, nervous about what's happening in their lives? And then the slight post-pandemic trepidation around the place, people getting used to a life that had kind of seemed so peculiar for the last two years and readjusting and realigning and resetting, if you like. I mean, this is a small thing, but the email came in saying, I went to the cinema this week and some parents had brought their crying baby. And they went back and forth, taking the child in and out. And that's not fair on me. I paid for the petrol to get there. I paid for the parking for my car. I paid for the ticket to the cinema. Uh, given the state of the world, I'd say my cinema issue is minuscule in terms of ups- upset. But then again, cinema is, is my way of retreat. And my issue is no control by the management of the cinema. And that, that's it. That's, that's the email that came in. Signed by somebody called Peewee up there. Details, obviously. And it just is a small thing. I saw somebody in, I better be careful where, what I say here, but because I don't want to identify the shop or the person. And they were dealing with very nice people behind the counter. I deal with them all the time. Lovely people. And this particular woman was dealing with this other lady who was, who was on my side of the counter. Yeah, she said, yeah. And she said, I'm going to leave this here. And she had a piece of paper in her hand that she was meant to hand to the woman. She threw it on the desk and walked away. Now, I know it's very small. But I looked at the person working in the shop and I said, does that happen a lot, that sort of rudeness? And she said, all the time. I have no idea how poorly behaved people are. It's extraordinary. And I just wonder, is it feeding into this national narc or this sense of... And narc seems a bit glib, probably a bit unfair, but just that sense of there's something going on. Now, I've been told twice this week by people who should know better when talking to me, but they've said it that Mercury is in retrograde. Now, I say they should know better. I'm not really an astrology guy, but they've said Mercury is in retrograde. Those of you who are listening who are astrology people will say, first of all, that was a bit rude, dismissing everything we believe in. And secondly, um, Mercury in retrograde is a thing. From the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself. Till next time.